So I have a special guest today, Clarice Grote from Amplify OT. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we're finally able to connect. So I was looking for basically the story how I found you was I was looking for advocacy for OT and basically I did a Google search and you know the top few ones are stuff like from AOTA but I looked deeper into the research as I was going to do a blog post on it and you came up and not only did you come up I I think I found more information from your content than <laughs> I did like all the other top Google searches so shame on Google for not bringing you to the top of the search results. <laughs> But, I probably just need to work on my SEO. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's doing pretty good. Yeah. So advocacy, I got my advocacy shirt on today for OT. And advocacy, I think we all know we should do it. And when I'm talking about advocacy today, I'm talking more strictly about advocating for the profession. I know we should all and you should all like all you listeners should advocate for your patients. But that's an entirely different thing. But today's topic, I want to talk about advocating for the profession. I think Clarice is a really good guest to talk about that. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about your story and how you even popped on the internet in the internet search. Can you tell a little bit, a little bit more about yourself and how you found OT? Sure. So I am originally from Kansas City, Missouri, and I originally went to undergrad. So I went to the University of Iowa to be a music therapist. Um, so I play the flute. So my bachelor's is actually in flute performance. Um, and I ended up not having all the science that I really wanted with it. There's definitely some research behind music therapy, but didn't quite have that kind of anatomy physiology stuff that I was craving. Mm -hmm. And my mom actually has Dupuytrens. And so she's had a few, uh, hand surgeries and has obviously then gone to occupational therapy. And she said, I think you'd really like it. Um, so I followed her hand therapist back in Kansas city. And unfortunately my mother was correct. <laughs> in that yeah. I did love occupational therapy and found it just really fascinating. Um, and so that kind of set my path there. I ended up going to grad school at Columbia University in New York and spent two years in New York City. Um, and that was during the 2016 presidential election, which if you mm -hmm. remember, healthcare was a big topic. You know, lots of conversation around repealing the Affordable Care Act, right? Um, which the ACA was important to me personally because my sister um, has type one. And so before the ACA, pre-existing conditions were not covered by health insurance. So it would have made it very difficult for someone like her or myself with asthma in order to get health insurance. Oh. And then also the ACA opened up a lot of opportunities for occupational therapy with the essential health benefits. So essentially requiring all publicly traded or most publicly traded uh, health insurance plans to require coverage of occupational therapy services. And so if the ACA to were to be fully repealed, it could be both negative personally, um, but also for the profession. And I did not want to graduate after spending all this money <laughs> to become an OT yeah. and then not be able to find a job because we know that the more people who have coverage of occupational therapy services, the more people who have insurance, the more likely we are to have patients and therefore the more jobs. So, you know, it's easier to have a job when people are paying for your services. So yeah, that was a big motivator for me to try and figure out what I could do. And so my family's always been fairly politically involved, politically minded. So I knew that that was a big um, area that we could have an impact. So I sought out opportunities. And that's where I realized that AOTA or the American Occupational Therapy Association, mm -hmm. that they offer fieldwork and capstone experiences. Now I have my master's, so I did a fieldwork. And yeah. at Columbia, you could elect to do a third level two. 
So oh. I had, yeah, so you do one, you're required to do one in mental health and you're required to do one in physical disabilities. So right. if you want to do a specialty, you have to do a third one. And so I did a third level two at AOTA with the federal affairs team. And that's what really kind of clicked for me that I love this policy and advocacy piece. I think like any student, you're trying to figure out what mm -hmm. do I want to do, what's next, you know, what population do I like? And exactly. so when I did that field work, it really clicked that advocacy and policy is like, I really liked how it made my brain work, how I thought about it, doing the research, digging into like those awful long documents. Which not everybody is like about. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and so that's kind of what really got me started on this path. And I just continued seeking out opportunities from that point of figuring out, okay, yes, I need to get my clinical experience, but how can I get more involved? after this as a clinician. And so I ended up applying for AOTA volunteer positions. Um, I worked with my state association. So I am a testament to get involved early. Um, I was appointed to the advocacy and policy coordinator position for the Holman Community Health Special Interest Section for AOTA um, two months after graduating. So I got involved early, didn't know what I was exactly getting into, didn't feel qualified. Was there a predecessor to you or like, was this? How did so that was a new position at the time. So the special interest sections, you know, they're kind of like our little, oh, I don't want to call them clubs. They're more than clubs, but they're yeah. kind of ways, you know, that you break down within AOTA to kind of have like interests. And so home right. community health was one and they had restructured the SISs and created an advocacy and policy coordinator position. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Well, so you really just cool. apply. So when AOTA puts out a call for volunteers, like I know they just extended one recently for a couple OTA positions. Um, Good. And I, you submit and you're appointed. And so people submit their application. So I have no idea if I was the only one who submitted it, but I like to tell myself that I wasn't. <laughs> there were probably hundreds of candidates hundreds. and you, you were the only one who got, no. Exactly. So that's just really cool. And were, what did other students, were there any that, like from your cohort that got involved in this kind of space? Cause typically we go, like for a third level two, I imagine it would have to be different, like you said. So did anybody else, what were like some other opportunities that our listeners should know about besides the AOTA? Maybe it may be out of like distance or another issue. Like, can you tell us a little bit about if there were yeah. any? So I think with field work, it's hard. So if you are a master's student and you have to do field works, the hard part about field works is that ACO requires like an experiential component and it has to be an OT who supervises you. Yeah. So at AOTA, Heather Parsons, who's the head of their federal affairs department, she's an occupational therapist. And so I was able to have an OT supervise me. And then I was also able to have um, that experience because I was able to be in person. So I lived in DC. So it met the ACO requirements. Mm -hmm. um, but it's harder to find that like, you know, for some like I take capstone students but I can't take a fieldwork student because I can't provide like an experience. Um, yeah. you know, it's just me in my office. So it's not really kind of an experiential component. So I can really only take capstone. And if someone were to come work with me as a fieldwork, they just have to like move to, you know, Durham and come visit me in my house. Every day. <laughs> like this is my the experience. Like, yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, well, exactly. that's really interesting that you brought that up because I'm pretty active on the AOTA discussion boards and, you know, advocacy comes up a lot and, one of the topics is like how we can get involved and some of it is not just quote unquote pe preaching to the prior and choir and talking to OTs, but getting out involved in other spaces. I think one of the 
one of the LTs, I've got a name, but he talked about how he may be doing like TED Talks and things like that. So that would be a great opportunity because it's an experience and you can definitely learn a lot from the process. And if there is LT involved, I think there's so much you can learn from just doing like your, you know, labs or just going to the specific setting, but learning about how everything else works around that space and because everything's connected. Yeah. yeah, and there's lots of like internship opportunities. So like CMS, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is a federal agency that runs Medicare and Medicaid, they yeah. take interns. Um, and so there are actually a few OTs who work for CMS and they've posted on Community about taking interns where you can apply. Um, there's also like uh, the SISs will take mm -hmm. interns as well. I know that sometimes state associations will take like capstone students. I don't know that they do fieldwork mm -hmm. students. I think I know of some like state association board members who will take a level two fieldwork and then incorporate. So like because they still work in the clinic because it's all volunteer run for state association. So yeah. they still work in the clinic and then they'll use their fieldwork student also in working with the state association. So there's like some different ways to get that experience without having to do a capstone. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to kind of look for them. I mean, working for a political campaign, another yeah. great way to get a lot of experience in policy and advocacy and learning how that side works. Um, if you really wanted to, you could go be an intern on the Hill, you know, working in DC. So there's lots of different opportunities, but in terms of like, if you want to make it integrated with your degree, um, the easiest way is if you have a capstone experience, it's much harder if you are, um, need to make that field work requirement. That's the harder part. Yeah, definitely. I think either one will, you'll definitely gain a lot and just being creative and just thinking outside the box. Cause sometimes I think a lot of times professors and faculty are on board with this. Cause if it's for advocacy, we're always all for it. So I want to talk about more about Amplify OT. So what's the story behind that? I think we kind of probably already know, but what motivated you to create Amplify OT? Yeah, so Amplify OT is my company. It's actually my full-time job. Um, and I say, so I call myself a Medicare specialist and health policy consultant. Um, and that Amplify OT, it's a website and social media and resources. Um, I started it in October of 2020. So in the full, you know, blast of COVID-19. And I was working in the acute care hospital at the time, full-time. So I was still a full-time clinician. And I thought, you know, I just want I was trying to figure out what my next step was. I knew that we were planning to move at some point in the next year or two um, so that I would have to leave my job. Um, hard yeah. to work as an acute care therapist remote. <laughs> but I was hey, trying to think of what yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I do acute care and acute rehab. So I was like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. So I knew I would need a new job. Um, and I was hoping my goal when I set out was to get like three to five years of the clinical experience and then try and move into a non-clinical job. So that's kind of what Amplify OT for me was, was to serve as like the next step. Um, and I really wanted a place where I could share resources as well as kind of write under my own name. I'd written a lot mm -hmm. for AOTA as well as our state association. But, you know, whenever I write for them, it's their property. It's their right. copyright. And so... I couldn't really share my articles and stuff without violating copyright laws. And so I wanted a way that I could write under my own name. So I took mm. a course called Therapy Blogging 101 that's put on by the non-clinical PT and the gal who runs Pink Oatmeal, Shanda and Meredith. I didn't um, know that exists. So, yeah, it's a really great course. And I learned how to create a website because, you know, they don't teach you that in school. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> And I had no idea um, how to create a website. And so 
which for anyone out there who's interested in starting a website, it cost me like 130 bucks total to get my website like yeah. up and running. So a pretty small investment in terms of starting a company. Definitely. Um, and I didn't, I honestly, I thought I wanted to share resources with people and make it more accessible. But I also hoped that it would just kind of serve as an online resume. I had no idea that it would take off the way that it has and that it would become <laughs> my full-time job and that, you know, I'd be like a micro influencer of OT and policy. Like I had no idea that that's where it would lead, but that's where it has. I'm just kind of traveling the adventure. I've always been a big believer of create as many doors as possible and then work hard to make them open. And yeah. so I don't follow that, you know, if one door closes, one door opens, because then you're just kind of waiting for life happen to you. I'm all about more disappointment out too. opportunities. Yes. And yeah. looking for ways that I can make things work. And so that's what I've done. I've always just kind of sought out opportunities and applied for things, even when I didn't feel like I was fully qualified. Um, and here I am. And so this is what I do now. So Amplify OT, I do podcasts, I write articles, I do webinars, I just launched a big course that I'm calling Mastering OT Policy and Medicare. Ooh. Um, yeah, it's real snazzy. It's the most <laughs> creative thing that I'm able to come up with. But All right, I know um, it's, it may not sound that interesting to like general public, but I think for clinicians and practitioners, it's like that's the meat and potatoes of like what we do. And for those yeah. of you guys who don't know, Medicare and Medicaid are one of the largest sources of you know resources and funding. Of course, you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not an expert on this, but in the United States, you know, a lot of the money besides commercial insurance. So mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll be working with clients or patients and billing them for Medicare or Medicaid or both uh, MediMedi. So it comes into the picture a lot. And so why should we care about Medicare? You know, like, is it just for people who are over 65, we get old and just come in with like physical disabilities? Or is there like a larger, you know, does it play a larger role in other areas for us as practitioners? Yeah, so Medicare is hugely important, and you're correct that Medicare itself is the largest payer. Um, and so Medicare, and I mean, we all kind of heard this in school, or most of us did that, you know, what Medicare does, other insurers follow. And that generally yeah. is true, um, because it's easier when Medicare is the largest payer, that means pretty much every healthcare system, EMR, billing department is going to be focused around what Medicare does and what Medicare wants in order for reimbursement. And so other mm -hmm. private insurers tend to copy what Medicare does to a certain extent. Um, yeah. But Medicare sets a lot of the rules of how we function. So healthcare is extremely regulated, right? It's one of the most regulated um, areas, which is why you see, you know, Amazon has been trying to dabble in healthcare and then they've closed some of their healthcare um, right. uh, adventures because they realize- yeah. yeah, because they realize it's so heavily regulated. And so it's hard to make it an overly profitable system because of all the regulations. Plus, you have those ethical things in there as well, where you have clinicians who have to do what's right for the patient while also complying with the regulations. And so mm -hmm. within the U.S. healthcare system, what we are or are not able to do is heavily driven by what we do or do not get paid for. Right, Because yeah. the first thing when you want to try something new, the first thing someone's going to ask you is how are you going to get paid for that? You know, and is it in your scope of practice? And so Medicare is a huge component of that. And so Medicare is our federal health insurance program, which means that they're federal laws. So violating a Medicare law is violating a federal law. So I believe it or not, people deal. violate it a lot. too. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> they yes, go to jail I, for it. So don't do it. <laughs> if you're thinking about 
anything a little sketchy. So, but it's there. It's good to protect ultimately the consumer, right, and the public. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. And so Medicare is super important, um, not only for you know providing services, obviously getting healthcare coverage to older adults. So generally, it's for individuals who are over the age of sixty-five. Other people can qualify when they're younger. So you are yeah. able to see like young adults who may be on Medicare. It's not super common, um, but it does happen. <laughs> it does have a large coverage area and it's highly regulated. So you're alluding to the federal. So what kind of got me a little bit, well, the question I had was, well, how does state play into this? Because we, you know, in the US, we have federal and state policy. When we become OTs, we have to, you know, we go and get licensed with the state. But, you know, how can one kind of, can you tell me, like, just in general terms, how this, how it falls into place as an OT? Like, okay, Medicare, that's federal, but does state come into the picture at some point as a practitioner or less? Yes. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you have both your federal and state level. And so just to clarify, when we're talking federal, we're talking about the entire United States of America. And so federal laws are set by the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate, more commonly called Congress. Um, now, on the state level, you also have a House and Senate, and so you have a state Congress as well. Um, so you have to abide by federal laws, which are, you know, think of the ACA, the IMPACT Act, um, Medicare mm -hmm. policy. Some Medicaid policy is set by the federal government as well. However, Medicaid policy largely falls to the states. State. And yeah. that's why Medicaid looks very different in every single state. So like the basic necessities are the same, like kind of some of the basic coverage requirements are the same between states, but mm -hmm. who's eligible, how much it costs, what they cover, what they pay for, very different by state. And so you have Medicaid for state issues. The state can also control some specific regulations for private insurers, but one mm -hmm. of the things that we most commonly interact with are licensure laws. So you not only have federal requirements, so abiding by the regulations and the policies of the federal government, but you also have to follow your state practice act, which includes your supervision, how often you have to renew your license, what you can call yourself, what credentials you can use, um, yeah. how many CEUs are required. I mean, all that stuff. And that's all state. And so it's really important that we pay both attention to the federal level as well as the state level, which is why I'm always a big supporter of being both an AOTA member as well as a state association Status. member. Um, because things like the licensure compact that has to be pa passed state by state. So even though mm -hmm. it's been an AOTA and NBCOT initiative, it's ultimately up to each individual state association to get that passed in their state. Um, and so those are things where it's really important to be present on both levels. I mean, even in Missouri. So I was on the board of the Missouri Occupational Therapy Association before I moved. Mm -hmm. um, and we had there was a bill that was introduced. There's a few different scenarios, but. One of the ones I think of that comes to mind was a bill that was introduced and it was to try and reduce licensure burdens. And so their primary target was for hairdressers and things like that to say, like, you could still operate without a license in mm -hmm. this profession. And they had a yeah. list of exemptions for medical professionals, but who wasn't on that list of exemptions were occupational therapists. So physical oh. therapists were on the list, but OT and speech were not, which means if that bill were to have passed as written, then someone would be able to practice in Missouri and call themselves an occupational therapist and say they provide occupational therapy services wow. without a license, which would have been huge. Part of what gives us so much credibility is having a license. And part of yeah. the reason we have a license is so you can take it away from someone who doesn't deserve it. So that point. would have been 
huge. It would have, you know, really destroyed some of our credibility. Fortunately, the bill didn't go anywhere, but that's also, again, where it's helpful to have AOTA because we had that bill. We went to AOTA and said, what do we do? Um, have you seen this anywhere else? And it turns out that that mm -hmm. bill had been introduced in numerous states. Oh, oh my gosh. And it could have set a precedence too, right? Yeah. yeah, so they come from like these kind of big national think tanks, and then they try and get the bill introduced in numerous states. And so, yeah, fortunately, we found out, you know, this is what other state associations had done. This is how they combated it. So we combated it. And fortunately, it didn't go anywhere. Um, it didn't have a lot of interest in the state house and Senate. But so you have to pay attention to both sides, because unfortunately, there are things coming at you from both the state and federal level. Some can be really positive for therapy. Debbie. Others can be really negative. Yeah. The analogy I could think of is probably sure all of you know is just abortion and the Roe v. Wade. How, for those of you guys who don't know, it was set by federal federal level, but then it's up to the individual states to then decide, right, what how they would enact or what they would do with people in abortion, and that can be a slow process too. I think, right, it's like things don't happen just like that, like on the internet. So, even though there is a lot coming at you. There's a lot of time, I think, to find out and research about it and make, make a voice and advocate or not. So all this does yeah. have to do with advocacy, you know, like. Yeah. And and in the state levels, too, you know, when we think about Congress and laws, we think about it as an all year process because that's how the federal government works. Right. That's their full time job. But in the yeah. state, a lot of times they only meet a few months out of the year. And mm -hmm. so that's why things can happen at weird times. They might have special um, elections. And so that's why nice. it's really important to pay attention both to local elections because you can like it's not just November 4th that people vote. You know, it can be throughout the year on like I remember when Missouri was expanding Medicaid. Um, I think that vote was like in August, you know, so it's important to pay attention to what's going on. And I'm always a big supporter. Exercise your right, you know, vote in all of your elections. Remember when you're voting, you're not just voting for your own personal interest. You're also voting for your professional interests um, because a lot, pretty Good much point. everything we do is regulated by, by the federal and state government. So it's really important to pay attention. Yeah. And one, one thing I, you brought up a good point about the professional thing in my research in making OT dude, I just found out about what professional really means. And I think this is a good topic because I didn't learn about it in school, but a professional is someone who may have to go through something like get a license so that they can do what they want to do. A good example would be a doctor. And it was just kind of blows my mind that you said that OT wasn't on the <laughs> list of a professional. Like, how can that be? You know, but it can happen easily because of lack of advocacy, right? Just yes. not knowing, oh, this is what OTs do. And they have to go through a rigorous program and training and they have to be vetted by like a they got doing their field work and all this stuff, which the public may not know, but it can also help build the credibility for the field and keep everything rigorous and make it so that the public has a general trust and they're safe with the profession because this happens a lot in other, you know, so and what's the term like other profession, lack of mm -hmm. other fields, basically like, oh, I don't know, like other less medical fields that you can get a lot of people pop up and they can be scams, straight up scams. So I think this is a good thing and we should continue to advocate for that. So yeah, that's a good well, point. And I think you're kind of talking to one of the points that I bring up in some of my, you know, uh, guest lectures or webinars of like this idea of a profession versus a job. Yeah. And so when we think about that, you know, a profession, just like you said, it requires advanced training. There's often an investment of time. 
And the big thing is that there's a sense of community. And I think if mm. you think about occupational therapy, it's definitely a community. I mean, mm -hmm. shoot, AOTA named their whole forum Commune OT, right? So right. it's a community of OT. Um, and versus a job affects a singular person. You're really just there as a means to an end. And so I always yeah. use that comparison of like, you know, when I worked at American Eagle in undergrad, right? That was a job for me. I don't care if American Eagle was here five years from now. I felt no sense of community. You know, I wasn't on some sort of forum of American Eagle gene experts. You know, I didn't care about the person next to me. Like there's a subreddit for it. <laughs> exactly. I had no real interest in making sure that American Eagle stuck around because if they, you know, went under a year into me working there, I just go work at Target or something. Right. You know, there's yeah. opportunities. But occupational therapy you know, if occupational therapy went away, that would rock my world. Like that would completely change. And so that's one of those questions that I ask a lot of times when I'm talking about advocacy is I ask people, you know, who likes getting paid? Everyone raises their hand. I ask, you know, who knows how they get paid? A lot more hands go down. And then I ask people to think about what would you lose if occupational therapy no longer existed? What would you hmm. lose if Medicare stopped paying for OT services? What would you lose if you no longer had a license in occupational therapy? Yeah. And that starts really putting in that perspective that, you know, we think of things that, oh, it'll always be here, but that's not always the case. You know, it could take one bad piece of legislation that's poorly written that sneaks in there mm -hmm. that could, you know, like that bill in Missouri that could completely remove the credibility of our license. And then that has to be fixed through other legislation, you know, or think about um, home health, right? The recent huge win we had of OTs being able to initiate the OASIS. Yeah. We were left out in that original bill over 30 years ago, and it has now taken over 30 years to get that fixed. Is that the one so, where you need PT as a co-treatment? Kind of so that's a qualifying service qualifying. and so oh. that's like has to do with the home health benefit and we're working on that and that also has to be a legislative fix yeah. i think aota is currently waiting on like the score so how much that bill is going to cost yeah. um, but just the ability of ot to initiate the initial and comprehensive exam in home health um so originally only pt speech and nursing were able so even if ot was on the order we couldn't mm -hmm. go out and start that episode but now we can but that again would had to be a legislative fix. It took over eight years of just introducing that bill in Congress to get it passed. Um, right. You didn't know every two years Congress starts over. So we're about to have a brand new Congress in January. So every bill that doesn't pass by time Congress starts over, we have to start again and reintroduce all those bills. And so it's just a long process. And I think especially in today's age, we think of things that happen fast, right? Um, something happens, we protest, something happens, we share things on social media. And we start talking about change in this really fast way. But when it comes to policy and legislation or like changing a Medicare rule, it's a really long process and often involves multiple conversations, right. getting told no, you know, finding who your allies are. And it takes a long time. It's a slow churn. And so we kind of get so used to this environment of, you know, things happen, we make change. But that's not always how it works. And I think that's why some people get frustrated by advocacy, yeah. especially when we're thinking about it on this bigger grand scheme, um, which that isn't only what advocacy is, but it does take time. Unfortunately, we don't control it. You know, Congress has other things to worry about besides OT initiatives. Besides yeah. um, and so it's just it takes a long time, which is why it's really important to get involved early, to stay involved and to keep putting on that pressure and contacting your legislators, building relationships because ultimately advocacy is a long game. There are some things that can change quickly, 
but ultimately it's a long haul and a lot of effort. So I think that's, there's bo both sides to that. One that because it takes so long, you have more opportunities to put on the pressure. So mm -hmm. I think the issue I think a lot of people bring up in, I've seen online forums is, well, I don't have the time to do this. I have to go to work. I have a life, Clarice. Like, how can I advocate <laughs> for OTP sites telling my patients or telling my coworkers, like other doctors, like, oh, maybe we should get more OT, but how can we do that? Like, I know we, we don't have a, like you, this is your full-time job pretty much, but how can we advocate? Does it mean more time? Can, what if we have the financial resources? What are some ways we can get involved? Yeah, so I think reframing how we think about advocacy is really important. And so I think when most people think about advocacy, they envision either a protest or something that takes a lot of time or going to D.C. and talking mm -hmm. to their legislators. And yes, that is one form of advocacy. But I'm a big proponent of what I call like everyday advocacy. And so that is something that doesn't take time that you're most likely already doing. Every time you educate a patient what OT is, you're effectively advocating for OT, right? Advocacy is when you try and convince someone to agree with you. You're advocating yeah. for them to be on your side. And so every time I convince a patient that they need occupational therapy, I'm engaging in advocacy. Every time I teach a nurse, a doctor, a case manager about what OT is, I'm engaging in advocacy. And so there are really easy ways to incorporate that into your life, like in home health. I used to have to call the doctor um, every time I made a plan of care and say, hey, I'm seeing Mrs. Jones, you know, three times a week for the next two weeks, um, sign off on my plan of care. But instead of just saying that, I would communicate, you know, I'm seeing her three times a week for the next two weeks in order to address you know, her difficulty with getting dressed in the morning, her difficulty yeah. with bathing, her difficulty engaging in um, household chores. And so by doing that, I'm doing what I need to do for my job, but also it's educating their staff on why I'm seeing the patient. So therefore educating them on what OT is. So then hopefully next time, maybe a different patient, Mrs. Smith comes into the office and says, oh, I'm just having such a hard time keeping up with, you know, getting my shoes on or keeping up with my house. They might think, hmm, maybe occupational therapy would be a good fit. And so that's just another way you're engaging in advocacy for that patient. And so that's a really important level. You know, we wouldn't be able to do some of our federal national advocacy without that everyday advocacy of gaining people's understanding of OT. Exactly. And there's ways to engage in that local and federal advocacy without spending a lot of time. One of the best ways to be an advocate is being a member. So mm -hmm. I always say that by being a member in AOTA, and I understand people have their own feelings, but by being a member, I'm investing in my ability to be an OT in the long run, because those are people yeah. who their full-time jobs are to advocate for us, either our federal affairs team, our regulatory team, state affairs, quality, whoever it is, their full-time job is to do that work. I don't have time to peruse, you know, congress.gov for all the different legislation that might impact OT and figure or out- Or you might not understand how. it too. <laughs> yeah, I might not understand it. I mean, shoot, the Medicare physician fee schedule is over a thousand pages long. You think I've got time to read that? No, but you know who does? The AOTA yeah, staff yeah. member whose job it is. So yeah. read that, figure out what it means, and submit comments. And so by being an AOTA member, I am supporting that work. Same thing by being a state association member. doesn't take any more of my time if I don't want it to, but I'm supporting that work. The only reason Missouri OT Association was able to hire a lobbyist is because we got more members. Yeah. Before that, we couldn't afford a lobbyist. And so by being a member, you are supporting advocacy. You can also use like AOTA's Take Action page or just by educating yourself. So there's lots of ways that you can engage in advocacy um, just by being a good occupational therapy practitioner. 
That's really the best way to be a good and effective OT advocate is just be a wonderful steward of the profession, which includes, you know, using best practice, using evidence-based practice, mm-hmm. understanding how our services impact our patients, not only in their physical or mental way, but also financially, which involves understanding the policy and regulation and making sure that you aren't part of the problem of the abuse of the healthcare system. Because there are a lot of practitioners who incidentally are potentially violating. I mean, I see it on Facebook every day, people admitting to accidentally violating federal laws, you know, and so I always say, don't bet your license on social media. And so it's good to ask questions and try and understand that, but make sure that you're always going to the source. And so lots of ways to be an effective OT advocate. And I think reframing our idea of that advocacy only involves being a leader and doing big gestures. No, just by being an effective and high quality occupational therapy practitioner, you are advocating for the profession. Exactly. And there is no wrong way, I think, to advocate unless you're breaking laws, you know, whatever (laughs) you think is right in for OT and you learn about it. And we have a lot of foundations like the code of ethics. A lot of it is Mm -hmm. intuitive. Just don't do anything illegal. You know, (laughs) you're going to advocate for OT. And a lot of you may think like, oh, this may not be relevant to me. Like who's going to, you go to a hospital and do I really have to advocate? But this actually can happen a lot, like in like smaller cities I've seen on, I think like on Reddit, like stories of like OTs who feel like OTs undervalued compared to other professions. And that can be a lot, if, especially if the role is bestowed on you and maybe you're the only OT, but that's a great opportunity and it just takes small steps. You may not make big gains, but even just small steps, getting OT more involved in that space can be a huge benefit to patients and just the value can come out. So I think in my research, I think we often don't really look at money and economics, but that has a part to play, would you say, in advocacy, even if it's not like directly money from us, but we talked about Medicare and how there's a lot of money involved, but how can more money in going to the right places help with advocacy? Yeah, so I think what you said there is really important of a lot of OTs feeling like they're not valued or that their work isn't respected. And I think obviously there's multiple issues going on at play there. But I think one of the things that, at least for me personally, that I found really helpful, honestly, was understanding how the healthcare system works. Like I said, there's a lot of policies. There's a lot of regulation. There's lots of what you can and can't do. And Mm -hmm. so I found it really frustrating when I was starting and I would say, okay, my patient needs this. And I would be told, oh, Medicare doesn't cover that. And then you think, darn, Medicare, why don't they understand what I'm worth? But it wasn't Medicare. It was either they were using Medicare. My, you know, when I say they, I mean like my bosses or my supervisors, they were using Medicare either as an excuse to not want to pay for what I was doing or they misunderstood the policy. Exactly. And so I think one of the biggest things we can do is assume one of the biggest mistakes we can make is assuming that just because someone has more experience or because they're a supervisor means that they understand policy. And that is not the case. Yeah. I have listened to a number of directors of rehab and big people completely butcher what a policy says. And so mm-hmm. I think part I kind of compare understanding policy and its importance to understanding how to drive. Right. If you just all of a sudden jumped in a car for the first time and tried to drive down the highway without understanding what a stop sign was or what the yellow or white lines mean and tried to drive, it would be terrifying. You'd never do it again or you'd die. Right. The rules of the road. Terrifying. But you so that's why you undergo through all this education and tests to understand the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. Therefore, driving isn't scary and frustrating, but we don't always get that training 
as OT practitioners, right? Especially we have so many things we have to cover in school. And I think reimbursement is a really important part, but it's not always put at the forefront because you assume that, oh, they'll get it in at field work. But then the problem is you have those field work supervisors who never got it in school. Right. And so then they're training the next generation and then they're still not getting that education. I've never had a job where they sat me down and taught me about why we would pick certain eval codes and why it's important, right? They just show you, here's where the billing is, check the box. That's what I realized too. It's kind of like a side thing, like, oh, bill for this. Like we did uh, billing in terms of in acute care, well, acute rehab where I do it, it's pretty standard and you bill based on, Mm -hmm. we do section GG now, which is the care tool, which replaced FIM and a lot of that's a Medicare thing, right? So we, I kind of learned that on the job and everyone kind of learned it on the way too. Like there's no formal training and like, you don't have to take a billing quiz or something to maybe we all should, because then maybe we can bill more efficiently and get more value out of what we're doing. But that's a really good point. It's understanding. Like you talk about section GG, right? Section GG is incredibly important because section GG not only determines quality measures in most post-acute care settings, but it also directly influences reimbursement. And so that's another big issue of why it's important to understand policy because we complain about, you know, job cuts or not getting paid enough or not having enough of a caseload. Well, you might be part of the problem if you're just going in and writing down scores willy nilly on section GG or the OASIS or the NDS or IRFPI, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. If you're just writing something down, making your best guess. Well, if you're writing a score that's not accurate, you could be negatively impacting how much that your agency is getting paid, especially exactly. under these value-based payment systems like PDPM and PDGM. Yeah. So then the facility isn't getting sufficient payment to cover the services that the patient needs. So then they're going to come back to you and tell you, well, you can't do that because we don't have the money. And so then it just leads to this frustration of, well, what the heck? No one yeah. respects my my judgment. But understanding how policy works helps you understand, you know, think about acute care, right? So when I work in the hospital, I have to make a discharge plan. Well, if I didn't understand the difference between an inpatient and an observation or an outpatient admission, then if I'm trying to recommend a skilled nursing facility discharge for a patient who's on observation or an outpatient stay, if I don't understand that Medicare requires a three midnight inpatient stay for that patient to go to sniff, I'm going to be pretty mad when the case manager calls me and tells me, you need to change your discharge score because they can't go to sniff. I'm going to say, well, they don't respect my clinical judgment. Mm-hmm. No, it's not that. It's that I made a discharge plan that was never going to work because yeah. Medicare wasn't going to cover that. And how many people have $500 a day to cover a skilled nursing facility stay out of pocket? Exactly. Right? And so by understanding policy and regulation, even though it sounds really intimidating, and that's whole, my whole goal is to try and break that down and show people that it's not that scary, that you can be a a policy wonk like me, that you can understand how policy impacts your job. Um, If we don't understand that, then it's going to lead to us feeling frustrated, like we're fighting against this invisible force, like nothing matters, that what we do isn't important. But sometimes we're part of the problem by not understanding that reimbursement and regulatory piece. You know, if you don't bill correctly in your outpatient visit, that claim gets denied. So then it gets kicked back to the billing department who then has to try and fix your error or they just don't deal with it, which then means instead of making that company money, you lost money. And so they lost money paying you, which means now they're not going to be able to hire a new OT to help support your caseload. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like lead to the burnout. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So by understanding how our system works, which it is possible, 
helps us better understand how to work within it, how to explain things to our patients, right? How many times do we get asked, does my insurance cover that? I never liked being like, oh, I, I'm not sure. Ask your case manager, <laughs> you know, like I still might give some vague answers because I never like to guarantee anything right. to patients because that can go wrong fast. Um, but, you know, being able to have a little bit of understanding helps us set ourselves up for success, helps us reduce this feeling like we're fighting against some sort of invisible wall and hitting the wall and also helps make sure that we're providing high quality care to our patients and understanding our role and what's expected of us and how it fits into this overall system. It's not a perfect healthcare system. Do I think there's lots of room for improvement? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to know how it works as it currently is. Exactly. I think you bring up a lot of good points. And the fact that it's not always the same either, even though it may be a slow system for regulations, an OT that's practiced 20 years ago who's still practicing may be facing different things and they can't bill for the same way or do the mm -hmm. same kind of interventions because they may not be, you know, paid for it, essentially. So staying on top of things is very important. Even if it's you're the best OT in the world, you have the best experience, policy may change the way that you deliver your services to your clients. And how we bill for it and all sorts of stuff. I mean, when you talk about people who've been practicing for a long time, I call some of those Frankenstein policies <laughs> because it's an old policy plus a little bit of the new policy, which just makes a wrong policy. Yeah. And so they're just like little bits and pieces of things that they remember hearing from 20 years ago or that their supervisor told their supervisor that's now been passed down the line. And, and then who's right? <laughs> like none and of who's them. right? And how <laughs> do we find out? And, you know, and I think that's kind of part of understanding policy and why it's intimidating is there's a lot of jargon mm -hmm. in there but the more that you're exposed to it the more that it starts to make sense right think about the first time you tried to learn anatomy or neuroanatomy my god so much jargon but the more you learned the more you studied the more it made sense so it's the same thing in policy and learning to speak that same language really helps build better advocacy and so like when i go to my boss because i don't like my productivity standard or i don't like x y or z if I just go in there and say, I don't think that's right, you're wrong, they're like, I'm not going to get anywhere. They're going to say, thank you, but we're not changing anything, right? But if I can go in there saying, here's what I read, this is CMS's policy, this is what it's explaining, you know, how this is how occupational therapy can positively improve your quality metrics, which I know impact how much you get paid, that's a different conversation. Exactly. Right? That opens a door. So by understanding how to speak the same language, we're able to make a better change. The same thing, like, you know, when I go to a patient's room, I'm not going to say, oh, well, it looks like, you know, your proximal stability is off. Like, they're going to be like, what? what? <laughs> you know, or like, can I see your elbow flexion? I'm like, no, can you bend your elbow like this for me? Right. That way we're on the same page. We're speaking the same language. We're going to be able to better communicate and make change. It's the same thing when we're talking to management or to a lobbyist or whoever it may be, our legislators knowing what the language is that they're trying to use, knowing their incentives, using those OT skills that you already have of identifying their goals, identifying what they want. Just take those motivations. skills, those motivations that you use on patients every day and apply that to management or to your legislator that all of a sudden starts to open so many doors, which is why I think occupational therapy is amazing because yes, we are a medical profession, but when you think about the core skills of OT, it's that task analysis, that problem mm -hmm. solving, that goal development. And you can take those three skills and apply it Hi. anywhere. Whether or not you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a legislator, a teacher, you know, you want to work in policy, you can take those core skills and apply them in any situation and have it be extremely valuable 
which is why I think OT is such a diverse and wonderful for profession is because of that kind of training. We think differently than a yeah. lot of other professionals. I think that's a really good point. And my wife told me this when she was like, first time I was in OT school and she had an OT that she worked with. She's a nurse, by the way. And the nurse just went and explained everything from the OT perspective. And it kind of blew her mind. It's kind of like <laughs> in, the, in the movie, The Matrix, when Neo saw everything in like code and like the OT explained it in terms of like PEO, I think probably and how the environment affects the client and how their occupation. And it's just like, it, it's a good point because it goes to show that OTs don't have to work in the traditional space. There's a lot of mm -hmm. OTs in a lot of areas that we don't even think about that are making doing important things like in ergonomics and policy, inventing things, solving problems and making people's lives better. And policy is another area where they, they can be involved where it can make healthcare better for the general public too. Yeah. Yeah. I think absolutely I think there's so many different ways that we can get involved. I mean, like I think about, you know, one of the things that I love to do, like everything that I like to do with patients, I love brushing teeth. That's like my favorite intervention is to have patients brush their teeth. And so what other people ask, you know, like a nursing aide or something like, why, right. why that? And I'm like, well, because it shows me their ability to track. It shows me their ability to problem solve. You know, do they turn on the hot water full blast and drink a full cup of that and burn their tongue? Or, you know, it shows me their balance because their dynamic yeah. standing balance, you know, it shows me their cognition. Are they able to identify which end of the toothbrush goes into their mouth? Are they able to use their fine motor skills to unscrew the lid of that toothbrush? You know, do they use soap instead of toothpaste? You know, it, it, and that's the way that OT thinks. And they're like, what? Like you look at, you get all of that out of a two and a half minute activity. I'm like, yes. And that's what makes OT so different. And so even though those skills I'm applying it to an ADL, I can take that and apply it to a productivity standard. I yeah. can take that and apply it to a policy and break down all the components of what's involved. What are the barriers? What are the supports? You know, who, what do I need to say in order to gain their interest, right? Every time that you explain, you are able to affect, get a patient out of bed because you know they don't want to. Every time you're able to encourage them to get out of bed and engage in therapy, that's again, another way of using advocacy because you are getting them onto your side of agreeing that occupational therapy is going to help them achieve their goals. That's a good point because we think about strengths and barriers like I do all the time and how can we break down those barriers and use our strengths and we can do that for ourselves when we think about advocacy because you're always going to run into some barrier of some kind. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we could do whatever you want and then that could be bad too, right? Like it may not be evidence-based, but how can we learn more about it, present the information to the audience that is involved in it and so that they can, we can all understand it so that we can overcome the barriers that we think we're on the same page about that we all agree with and generally that tends to be the case like ot yeah. does great things for the general public so you're going to meet resistance i think not due to a lack of like your idea being bad or ot not being useful it's just a lack of understanding a lot of times more than not what the value of ot is for the public but what would you think what would you say are some misconceptions about this space like policy and advocacy and things like that like i think the biggest misunderstanding or misconception is that I can't do it or that mm. it's too hard or it's purposefully not for me or that or that it's not important. You know, I think yeah. those misunderstandings of that, why should I care? It's not important and it's too hard are just not the case. One, it is incredibly important. 
not only for protecting your license, but also for pay, for jobs, for productivity, um, making sure you aren't accidentally violating a federal policy. Because um, it'll affect your license. Yeah, you know, just a little, just a little federal felony. Um, but also that it's too hard. And I understand there's, mm. it's definitely not the easiest thing. And it's hard when you pull up a Medicare policy and you're like, what the heck is this saying? Right. I understand what qualifying means. What's a conditions of participation? What it's is terms within terms? About? Yeah. Terms within terms. Right. When I first started learning about policy, I would go down all these rabbit holes of clicking all of the links <laughs> to try and figure out, you know, because right. It's like, oh, well, in this yeah. document, Section 230.4, I'm like, what? You know, right. and then it talks about the Social Security Act. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Right. And so it's hard. But I always encourage people, one, find a resource that you understand. And that's what AOTA is really good for. That's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do with my work. Um, find a policy, find an article that also cites its sources. And so like yeah. AOTA does an excellent job of this. I try and do it. There are some companies that don't do a good job mm -hmm. um, of putting in links to what they're citing. Like one of the big ones, you know, I like WebPT's articles. I think they're well written but they never link to the CMS policy. So it's fantastic to me that they explain to me how to use the OTA modifier or how to use the eight minute rule. But then when they don't link to the actual source, I can't verify that what they said is correct. And I can't yeah. show up to my boss with a web, web PT article and say, here you go, right? I'm gonna need that CMS policy. And so sometimes having someone who breaks it down for you first and then looking at the actual source, all of a sudden it starts to click and not all CMS resources are scary. They actually have lots yeah. of really good and easy to understand trainings. Like when you're talking about Section GG, they have fantastic free like videos, easy right? to understand training. Yeah, there's videos yeah. as well as like an interactive like walkthrough, click through thing. Mm -hmm. CMS just released a ton of videos on scoring the Oasis E, which is starting January 1st of 2023. I mean, so yes, it's a bit challenging, but it's also a bit challenging to try and understand how a stroke affects the brain. It's also a bit challenging to treat, you know, um, CRPS, right? But we figured it out. You did some research. Mm -hmm. You looked at the journal articles. Maybe you found an article first and then read the journal article. So do that same thing that you do and then apply it to policy. And so I also encourage people that when you're getting your CEUs, because you're required, so you might as well do it, you know, do two for one. Not only do the intervention CEUs, which are important, but mix in some policy CEUs in there as well. You know, MedBridge does a good job of having both uh, intervention as well as policy and leadership-based CEUs. AOTA mm -hmm. has a lot of fantastic intervention and policy CEUs. So while you're looking at all those different CEUs, throw in a few different policy ones because yeah. it is part of our code of ethics to understand the rules and regulations. There's an entire section on billing in the code of ethics. Yeah. So we can't ignore it and so just try and the things that you already have to do like getting education ceu credits mix in some policy ones and start getting the understanding pick one topic that you're interested in and look into that for me i started with home health because that's where my job was i started in understanding home health policy and then from there i kind of started expanding a little bit more when i got into acute i started learning more about how hospitals are paid for by medicare right and then someone asked me to speak about skilled nursing facilities so i started looking into skilled nursing facilities and yeah, so, we have the same kind of thing where we like, I always do self-research projects, even if it's something like random and I go down a rabbit hole and it also helps me to advocate for something. And then more often than not, I think maybe it has to be, and you probably relate, has to do with being an OT, but a lot of it goes back to OT too. And it's like, oh, yeah. I can use this for OT or this is directly related to OT. Like 
how can is OT doing something like this already? Like probably, but are we getting billed for it, paid for it? You know, so that's a really good point. That yeah, yeah. And so it's just it's just has you have to start somewhere, and by understanding how things work, you're bit you're better able to effectively document. You're better able to bill correctly, yeah. and the way that we document and the way we bill impacts the payment models of the future. And so it's really important, you know, because CMS collects all of that data, all of your documentation, all of your CPT codes, everything like that. They collect all of it. They analyze that data and they use it to inform how they structure their payment models in the future. Yeah. And so it's really important what codes you're picking, how you're documenting, all that kind of stuff. And so it's all about the long game. You know, and thinking about what's the future, because there's always things changing. I mean, CMS is discussing how they can create a unified post-acute care payment model. Now, mm. when the heck that's going to come out, I don't know. They've been talking about it since like 2014 or earlier. Um, but it's coming eventually because Congress is requiring them to do it. Yeah. And so they're looking at all of that data and figuring out, okay, well, what do OTs do? And a lot of the ways they understand what we do is based on how we document and bill for our services. Exactly. And so if you're not doing it accurately, they're going to have a inaccurate picture of what OT is. And it's so almost kind of like part of the big picture. <laughs> yeah. It's almost kind of like you're every individual practitioner is like running their own business or something like we need, may not be thinking about it, but we have the foundations of like, the service that we're doing as OT is a service, but we're billing people like every day because we're not all doing anything for, unless you're doing it for pro bono and you're really, you have a lot, you're retired or something, you have a lot of free time on your hands. We're all billing on behalf of our employer, or if you're doing, you have your own private practice, you definitely should know how you're billing and if you're doing it effectively and so that you get paid on time too. You know, a lot of people have their yeah. own practice and this comes into play. You may be behind on payment and maybe understanding the changes and making sure you're being effective and doing everything accurately so that you get paid on time. Yeah. And I mean, that's the part of understanding the implications of the patient, right? One of the biggest things in our, um, of our code of ethics is non-maleficence. So not mm -hmm. causing harm to the patient, but one of those things listed under non-maleficence includes financial harm. Yeah. It can be purposeful or incidental, but Let's say you provide a service that you think should be covered, but for whatever reason, you know, that person's private health insurance didn't cover that service that you provided because sometimes they don't reimburse for like a self-care code or something like sure. that. So you provided a service that wasn't covered. Well, someone's going to pay that bill. And if the insurance isn't going to pay for it, I can almost guarantee your employer is not going to pay for it. So guess who's going to end up paying it? The patient. Patient. Right. Or understanding that when you're seeing a patient in the hospital and they're on an outpatient or observation stay, that's being billed under Medicare Part B, which means that patient has a 20% co-insurance every time you see them. Mm -hmm. So while you may think, oh, what's the big deal? I'll just sneak in that 10 minute, you know, that 20 minute visit, get my extra couple units for the day, make my productivity goals. You know, they're not ever going to have to pay for it. Uh-uh. They may be owing a 20% co-insurance and they get that bill three months from now for their hospital stay. They might yeah. be calling your department and say, well, why did the OT come see me? They just did the same thing the PT did. Right. And if you don't document what you did or why it was valuable, you know, that patient's going to be upset. And so or if you have a patient who has, let's say, a 20 a 20 dollar copay every time they come to see you, if you're seeing like, oh, well, I'm going to see him three times a week. But you don't know that that patient is now spending 60 dollars every week or sometimes it's more 50 dollars, 150 dollars every week they come to occupational therapy. Would you pay 150 dollars out of pocket for six weeks yeah. of the service that you're providing? 
right? So we can't always assume that, oh, well, insurance is covering it because that is not always the case. Sometimes it goes straight to the deduct deductible, which means someone may have $3,000 to pay before OT is ever covered. And I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty upset if I all of a sudden owed $3,000 because my OT didn't take that into consideration. Yeah. So just like when we expect our doctors to think about how a service is covered or how our prescription might be covered, our patients are expecting the same thing of us. So understanding that dynamic of that people will respect what we say because we're a medical professional. If I say, I think it'd be helpful for you to have a toilet riser, they're probably going to go out and buy that toilet riser, whether or not they can afford it. Yeah. So really thinking about that financial. So one of the things exactly. I ask a lot of my patients is, what's the financial situation? Mm -hmm. You know, are we in a situation where really I need to recommend only what is absolutely necessary mm -hmm. and we need to think more affordably? Or is it anything under the sun is fine? Or opening up with a patient saying, I understand that you have a $50 copay every time you come to visit me. You know, how are we feeling about this? Do I need to take that into consideration and kind of answer, you know, I don't ever want to ask like, can you afford this? Because sometimes people are like, oh, well, right, it might be offensive. And I understand expensive. money is, it's a tough conversation. It's not comfortable. It's one that we've raised to be kind of taboo of discussing finances, but it's one that's important because the last yeah. thing you want is for that patient not to come back because mm -hmm. you didn't discuss it and they can't afford it. Versus if we understood up front that maybe they can't afford to pay $50 regularly, but they can maybe every couple of weeks, then maybe then we're able to work with things and that changes how my plan of care is. Maybe I focus a lot more on the things that only I can provide and then talking to them about, you know, really emphasizing that home exercise program or whatever it exactly. may be. It changes how your plan of care is. If you know that that patient's going to get home health after they discharge, how I might work with that patient is going to be different from the patient who I know is going to get absolutely no therapy after they discharge, right? <laughs> you know, and so we don't always like to say, oh, well, I treat every patient equally. Sure, so do I. I give good care to every single patient that I see. But understanding what that follow-up care is going to look yeah. like will change what I focus on when I'm working with them. That's a really good point because we always want what's best for the patient and you know, always think client-centered. But yeah, because a lot of times even in OT school, we learn, oh, like adaptive equipment is great and we can recommend everything under the sun. But it all comes back to this is a way of advocating for the profession because there are different ways. There's no wrong answer to do OT. There's always one better way, but that may cost more money in the long mm -hmm. run. And it may be a huge barrier for the patient. It may cost them more or even not even be able to do it at all. But that's a really good point because then you can use your OT thinking hat, put it on. And then how can I do it another way to get to the same, reach the same goal without having all these other barriers and disappointments exactly. too. Yeah. And I think that's an important part, especially for those who engage in research, to think about a lot of the research we see in OT comes out of these very well-funded programs. But when I was working in a rural inpatient rehab facility, I didn't have time to set up the we to engage in right. virtual reality. We didn't have all this kind of stuff. I had a bucket full of old medicine model bottles, I had a, <laughs> some cones, I had an ergometer, and I had some weights. Same. That's what I had to work with in a little fake kitchen, right? Yeah. Like, so I didn't have all this fancy technology and a bioness and all this artificial mm -hmm. feedback. I just had to work with what I had. And so, while it's fantastic that we have all these innovative and new ways of providing treatment, we also have to consider that cost and whether or not it's covered. I think it's fantastic that we have a lot of capstone programs that want to provide all these different kinds of interventions to 
individuals experiencing homelessness or individuals who may be displaced for research but after that for research but after that student leaves then what yeah what what happens to those people is is that a sustainable model and at that point i almost think that it's kind of just a transactional relationship that we are using that population in for, order to get research mm -hmm. but we're not really setting up a sustainable model because we never considered how or if that service may be paid for so then we just provided a service and then took that whole structure out away from those patients you know from those individuals who needed care and That's so i think it's an important part that we need to be thinking about in every level yeah. unfortunately our system is heavily driven by money and by reimbursement even though i'm sure it would be fantastic if I could have the lifestyle I wanted while working for free. That would be great, but that's not the reality, right? And so we have to think about that piece, even though it's not comfortable, it's not always easy, yeah. and it doesn't always have straightforward answers, but it's something that we need to be thinking about is how can we make some of these new innovative models of therapy sustainable, sustainable. affordable, and how can we make sure they fit into the current model that we have and the realistic budgets of some of the sittings that we're working with? Because not only those who are wealthy deserve the best care. Yeah, everyone does. Everyone well, does, exactly. So if someone came up to you, let's say you're like the rehab director or maybe you're just the OT, what would you do in a situation when you have a question about an intervention or a service or a piece of equipment, anything that you're doing under OT scope, if it's paid for and your higher up management doesn't know, or you, the answer they give you is you're like, no, I don't buy that, right? What should you do in that case? Because you're at this point, you're advocating for the profession and for the patient, right? What would you recommend that someone do when there is a question or unanswered question, or you're just not sure about something? Um, usually I contact AOTA's regulatory department <laughs> if I have a specific question, because they are really the experts in coding and billing. And okay. I think sometimes just because it's not listed doesn't mean it's covered and also doesn't mean it's not covered and so i think there's it's kind of an interesting way of how we bill and how we code and so i always try and find one way or another i try and get my way to the source so whether that's talking to someone like me whether or not it's talking to your billing department whether or not it's talking to aota and their regulatory team mm -hmm. getting some information and then having someone who's going to send you a resource that you can use like one of the most common examples i think of is this idea that people got in their heads that under the patient driven groupings model that medicare limits therapy visits mm -hmm. and this is this idea that's been perpetuated um and we could spend 30 minutes talking about what it is and isn't but the fact of the matter is is that medicare has explicitly stated that they never limit limit medically necessary uh, right that's always visits. in the language it's in the language and they have multiple documents stating that explicitly now, what's key is that they only cover medically necessary visits. Now, just yeah. because we think something is skilled and it's our clinical judgment doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. But again, understanding that definition. But if you have that question and you go to your boss and they say, well, Medicare doesn't cover that. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is say, oh, that's so interesting. Would you mind showing me the policy? I'd love to learn. Yeah. Right. So asking, putting the burden on them sometimes to show you the policy. And then when they can't come up with anything or they go looking for the policy themselves, they may find that what they're perpetuating isn't necessarily accurate. And so, yeah. you know, do your own research, have them do their research and trying to find that source that's directly from Medicare or from the biller, whoever it is that is creating that rule. So oftentimes we think of Medicare policy, um, but you can also look at like the private insurance benefit manuals, which private right. insurance gets really funky because just because it's under a covered service doesn't mean they'll approve to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a whole other problem. Yeah. Medicare Advantage and private insurance. But 
um, trying to find that source. So always going to the source. Don't take what someone told you on Facebook. Be like, well, you know, Susie XXO told me that, you know, Medicare does pay for this. Well, that's not going to stand up in court, Mm -hmm. you know, so thinking about those things and trying to find that source. So finding someone who's reputable and asking a question. So whether that be AOTA, AOTA's regulatory team, which if you're a member, you can contact any of the AOTA experts and they will answer your questions. It might take a few days, but they will answer the question. Um, And so that's always a fantastic member benefit that I don't think people use enough. Um, contacting someone like myself or another policy person and trying to get information and eventually finding your way to the source. Because sometimes it's hard to find a policy if you don't know what terms to use. And I always recommend if you're looking up something for Medicare, put in the search term like CMS. So if you're looking Mm -hmm. for something under SNF, you know, put SNF, CMS, and then whatever your question is, and that'll hopefully bring the Medicare resources up to the top. Because otherwise, sometimes you just get inundated with a bunch of blog posts that you never know are accurate. (laughs) Exactly. Which... I may, you know, which I do a blog post, but yeah, it's a good point. Just always going back to the source and someone will know the answer because that answer is the absolute what you can and cannot do. And if they're wrong, then, you know, it's not on you because you went to the source too. So that's a, that's a really good point. So I had a question about mental health because a lot, both you and I do a lot of physical disabilities and we did in our experiences, but mental health, you know, OT, we had our roots in mental health, you know, with a lot of the beginnings, um, well, if you studied OT history and remember it, I felt like, and a lot of OTs feel like mental health may have lacked or has lost a lot of its scope of practice and its momentum and really what we can do. So why do you think that is and where are we headed in that space in terms of policy? Well, and I think it's hard. Mental health is so interesting because really no matter where you are, even if you're working in physical disabilities, you're working in mental health every single day with, you know, all the sorts of anxiety and depression. Someone with schizophrenia can also break their leg, you Mm -hmm. know, so you're working in mental health all the time. And I can say that we pay a lot more attention to it than I think a lot of our colleagues do. Um, But when we think about mental health as a traditional, like as a setting, like working in a psychiatric unit or things like that, the policy this is another one where policy and regulation has really shaped what that looked like right when you think about 20 years ago when we used to have these big institutions and all these hospital beds um right we think of that as not fantastic because all these people were institutionalized so then there was a policy that was created that you know psychiatric units couldn't have more than so many beds Mm -hmm. which has then created kind of its own problem to where we have to kind of keep kicking people out so we can take more people in because we can only regulatory wise have so many beds and so it's kind of these ups and downs but then again if we increase how many beds a psychiatric unit can have then do we go back to institutionalization right right? so it creates like this weird there's no necessarily right wrong better you know like there's always going to be pros and cons to a policy and so when we think about those traditional settings sometimes the reimbursement isn't always there i think the reimbursement is getting better Mm -hmm. aota has been doing a lot of work on advocating for recognition of OTs as mental health providers. So making yeah. sure that we're included in language. Um, That's a current issue too, right? I think we had mm-hmm. a win in Yeah, there was, progress. was some some mental health bill passed, and I'll be honest, I haven't read up on it yet. Yeah. Um, but AOT, that's been a big effort of AOTA to get us recognized as mental health providers. We're recognized as an eligible mental health provider under Community Behavioral Health Centers, which was yeah. a big bill that passed a while back. Um, and so there's opportunities But again, it's about figuring out how that billing is. And so there is a certain amount of mental health care that can be 
build underneath your normal codes, right? Mm -hmm. There is a certain amount of mental health care that is could be fit well under a self-care CPT code that could fit well under a therapeutic activity CPT code. But understanding that definition and how that's covered, you know, that helps you understand how to build that better. And so it's just kind of understanding how all that works. And I think oftentimes we look at mental health as kind of a bundled care service. So like they kind of get a lump sum payment for that mm. service. And so again, understanding that OT, we are an expensive service. We're pretty yeah. expensive when it comes to paying an OT salary and pay. We're one of yeah. the more expensive providers in healthcare. And so that's what also makes it a barrier is that a lot of people who work in mental health have to accept a lower payment because the payment's just not there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just and something that people are working on trying to prove reimbursement. I think we've seen progress in recognizing that mental health is a issue that needs to be addressed and needs to be covered. The ACA made huge steps in making some level of mental health care required, but it's just about figuring out how we can fit in. Getting OTs on the list is an eligible provider. Yeah. Um, and so there's progress being made. There's definitely a lot more to be done, but a lot of it, and I'm definitely no mental health billing expert at all. Um, I know there's been conversations about it on community about how yeah. we can bill for mental health services, but I think there's opportunities. But again, it's about figuring out how we can fit within that system and how we can get access to patients. Because while it would be great to provide the services for free or if patients could afford it out of pocket, that's just unfortunately not the reality for most folks. Yeah. Someone has to pay for it at the end of the day, even if it's mental health, whatever, any intervention. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Someone's got to pay for it, whether it's us, the patient or the payer, you know, some one way or another, it's all got to fit into the system. So it's just about figuring out what your opportunities are. And there's been more OTs expanding, you know, working for public health departments or working yeah. for departments on aging and finding ways to get involved in those spaces um, is really helpful. And even if I think too, understanding that even if we can't be there all the time, how can we help train staff to think in a similar way that we do so that those patients mm -hmm. are still able to get that care? Not saying that we should replace ourselves, but understanding that we can't always be in all one place or there's not always enough providers. So how can we help make sure that everyone's kind of thinking on that same that same playing field? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's about almost all the time. We have just a few <laughs> minutes left. It flies by when you're talking about interesting stuff to me i think this is really fascinating <laughs> and i can talk about it for hours so <laughs> yeah yeah lightning questions it's time for our lightning questions are you ready for our lightning questions i am so ready okay clarice what is your personal favorite occupation if you had to name one um so personal for me my favorite occupation i would have to say probably napping i love a good <laughs> nap in front of the tv <laughs> and it's important like too <laughs> and it's important, right? Sleep is important. I love to take a good nap. I love to just like hang out and watch some TV. If you're talking about like occupations I enjoy with patients, brushing teeth is my favorite. So you say client or patient more? Um, I say patient because that's just where I primarily worked. I worked in home health and in acute and we yeah. have them patients. Um, if I'm trying to speak more generally, I might call them clients or if I'm talking like community based, I generally try and use the term client. But personally, I pretty much always use patient because it's just what I'm used to. What is something that you read lately that you would recommend to our listeners or viewers? Um, one thing. So I've been slowly, very slowly working my way through a book called The Gutsy Girl, which is just kind of about how to think um, more as a leader, as a woman, because we face a lot of different 
um, you know, either how we were socialized to think about our leadership capacities, the fact that it, not as many women apply to leadership roles or this feeling that you have to check all the boxes before you can actually apply for something. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just kind of talks about that, how to reframe your thinking, which has been helpful in thinking about my business. Um, but I must say, like, my all-time favorite book that I've read that really changed how I look at things and how I look at how I practice is Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Okay. Um, which if you haven't read anything by Atul Gawande, he's fantastic. He has like the checklist manifesto too, which is really fascinating. Um, even though it sounds a little psychotic saying ma manifesto, but like it's a fantastic book. Um, but Being Mortal, I recommend every practitioner read. It's about the death and dying process and how we handle it here oh, in the United States and how problematic it is. Yeah. Um, and it really got me thinking about because I think as practitioners, I mean, especially OT, we we deal a lot with the death and dying process yeah, and how we address that with patients and getting comfortable with it and how we aren't comfortable with it in the U.S. Um, and so it gave me a lot of tools to ask patients about, you know, what their goals are, especially when I was working with hospice and palliative patients, you know, asking people if time gets short, what's mm -hmm. most important to you? So that's a good way of kind of getting at the question without being like, so if you're going to die soon, what do you want to do, right? Like, that's never going to get you a good answer. And so it really got me comfortable with talking and discussing how we handle that process and also how to have the conversation of when, unfortunately, at times we have reached what we're able to do as therapy practitioners. Exactly. Unfortunately, we can't do any more. And that's just the reality. It's not our fault. It's just sometimes we've just reached what we're able to do. And it got me a lot more comfortable having that conversation. What would you say is the big takeaway from today's episode? Biggest takeaway, I think, is just knowing that in order to engage in advocacy and understand policy, it doesn't take multiple degrees. It doesn't take super specialty certifications or lots of time that you are able to be an effective OT advocate just by being a fantastic practitioner, by being a member that you can engage in policy and that you should just start somewhere just take one ceu and figure and see and see if it opens up some doors and opens mm -hmm. up some things for you so that would be my takeaway get involved pay attention and just kind of look for little opportunities to incorporate that into your daily life you know yes this is my full-time job this is what i love to do but there are ways to engage in advocacy and policy in a way that doesn't take up a lot of time yeah and if you guys don't follow Clarice already, I think a really great and easy way, which just takes like not even a second, is to follow her on Instagram, check out her newsletter and her website. That's how I found her. And you are a wealth of resources. And a lot of this can be, I think, applicable to any OT, just to build a foundation of advocacy so that you can go off and learn more and do better for your patients and your clients too. So yeah, thank you so much like for you. being on the show. I'm oh, sorry. Absolutely. No, I was just saying, like you, I have my own podcast as well, the Amplify oh, yes. OT podcast. So that's another great way to kind of like, because I know we're all busy. So listening to things on the go, mm -hmm. like 30 minutes. Um, I try not to talk too fast, but that's not my strength. <laughs> you can always listen to it in half slow-mo, you know, our assistive technology. <laughs> you might have to listen to it in half speed, exactly. <laughs> but when you listen to CMS stuff, make sure you listen to it in like one and a half speed because they are experts yes. in talking excruciatingly slow. Um, but it's yeah, good falling you. asleep material. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I'm like, wait, what did they say? So, and that's someone who's interested. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Jeff, for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd happy be, be happy to talk about any of this stuff anytime. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you all learned something and gained something from today. And you're all advocates. And thank you for choosing OT. Have a nice day. Bye.